it's just something of why isn't chocolate produced at origin? And some people might think that it relates to, you know, resources and access, but we built a factory. It employed 42 people in one of the poorest countries in the world. So it can be done. Um, we are a model for that. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today we have with us Ashton Pinia, Director of Communication of Beyond Good. More flavor, more fairness, chocolate made right. Welcome, Ashton. Hi, thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to um, share our story um, and talk more about the amazing things that make chocolate exciting. I have a confession to make. I'm an official chocoholic. I love chocolates. I could eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Honestly, shouldn't be, but I definitely could and do often. <laughs> and especially during times right now, chocolate is such a great thing to turn to in times of comfort or in crisis when you just need that boost of of energy or just something sweet to soothe um, all the stress that might be coming up. So chocoholics unite in this moment. It's a great time to be a, a lover of chocolate for sure. Most of the chocolates that we consume come from Africa, right? Yes, about 70% of the world's supply actually does come from Africa, most of it being from West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, or, or Ghana. Those are the, the main countries that export cocoa. Um, but the one issue that it sometimes happen is about 70% of the world's supply is made there, but zero is actually produced. So that means all the value is captured in European countries or in America. So uh, cocoa farmers in West Africa make on average about $1 to $1.50 a day um, in wages. And um, so that's where some of the disruption that we uh, started the company for to really start that conversation around farmer uh, economics and supply chain development and access to wages and decreasing poverty. What role did colonialism have to play in this whole scenario that you have present to us? That the cocoa pod is grown in Africa, but the wealth is created and earned in Europe and in America. Cocoa, it's still held to the same colonialism mechanisms that were established. Um, I'm, I'm a person of color and, and most people who work in cocoa on the farmer level are of color. And so sometimes there are issues of, of people of color constantly being minimized and uh, oppressed in, in different in different industries, cocoa being one of them. The industry as a whole, chocolate is worth $105 billion, whereas cocoa as a raw material is only worth $5 billion to the industry. So it's just something to think about when we're um, purchasing um, different cocoa brands of how they're supporting their farmers uh, to make sure that they're earning the most responsible wages. And in the same time, that cocoa is the main ingredient. You can find in some chocolate products, cocoa isn't even the main ingredient. It's sugar or other type of, of ingredients that are flavored to make you taste like cocoa. So you said $5 billion is the value of the cocoa that is used to make $105 billion worth of finished product? Yes, that's correct. 
It's interesting. Uh, it's really when I think about the dichotomy of those numbers, it's just something of why isn't chocolate produced at origin? And some people might think that it relates to, you know, resources and access, but we built a factory. It employed 42 people in one of the poorest countries in the world. So it can be done. Um, we are a model for that. And so we developed, we changed our name from Marikas last year uh, to Beyond Good to really articulate the practices that we're doing to solve some of the issues affecting global chocolate. And that is producing at origin. If you can uh, keep the beans within the same country, the value is then captured in that country. And so we're, we're exporting uh, finished product from Madagascar to America. And that means our farmers can earn six times more than the than the average cocoa farmer or um, our, our factory workers um, are able to participate and collaborate in, in the process of economic development because they mm-hmm. are making finished product in the country where the beans are sourced from. So this leads me to two different questions. One, what are the different types of cocoa? I believe there are different colored cocos and what role do they play in the ultimate final product? Yeah, so there's three different flavors of cocoa. Um, there is Trinitario, which is kind of the most commodity. That's what most chocolate is is grown. Um, and, and as a reminder, cocoa does grow on a tree. So it comes from a tree that is best grown and humid around uh, the equator. Um, that's where it has its best uh, growing um, atmosphere. And so um, there's Trinitario, which is commodity. And that's really just kind of most bland flavor. There's no real biodiverse elements to the growth process. It's just monocropped plain cocoa. Mm-hmm. And that's what most mm-hmm. of West of A- West Africa is. Then there's Forestero, which has a more elements of flavor. Um, and there's a more dedicated process to how the, the cocoa is grown. And then finally, there's Criollo. And we've tested our our trees to uh, with the USDA to find that our trees are some of the earth's original variety of cocoa, which is Criollo. And that comes from cocoa originated in Mexico. And so trees were brought over during the different times of, of migration. And so we have found that our trees are the, the finest flavor of cocoa. So my second question to you, how is a, this cocoa processed? So cocoa is harvested. Um, our, our farmers, uh, we work with about a hundred farmers. Uh, some are small holders, meaning they have a one plot of land and they work in a collaborative or they have a full plot or they are large farmers. So that means they're really exporting a large quantity of cocoa. And so it's harvested, which it's, it's usually, um, chopped off with a machete or some type of material, all done by hand. Um, and then brought back to the farm, cut open and, and the beans are then poured out. Um, and then they're collected. Usually, uh, they then get turned into, into a fermented box, which they get rotated every two to three days. Um, and that could change the process of flavor there. That's kind of one of the first process elements that can really shift the flavor is in the fermentation. And that's where our farmers are actually able to increase value. In some instances, uh, farmers sell wet beans. Uh, so they're not fermenting, they're not drying them. And so they're not able to actually get as much value because they're just selling Mm -hmm. wet beans. But with us, we work with our farmers to make sure that they have all the techniques to uh, dry and ferment their beans so they're actually able to increase their value of their bean. Now, just because the, the, the bean is the best flavor, there's other processes that can change the flavor of cocoa. It could be how, how 
how much you ferment from six days to seven days that you ferment the beans. And that's when they sit um, in, in different types of fermenting. It could be bananas, it could be in boxes, and it sits there, uh, warms mm-hmm. up where all the uh, flavors and smells come out. That was one of the most exciting parts for me when I went to my visit to Madagascar earlier this year, uh, was really to smell what a cocoa farm smells like. It's really acidity and, and strong, but like the flavors are really coming out within the fermentation. Um, and then they sit out in open air and dry for about a week. Then they're collected, bagged, and then shipped to, um, our factory in Anatanarivo, Madagascar, where they're then produced into a, a, a chocolate bar. And from there, it, they get brought into the factory. They're clean. They're sorted. The beans are roasted. Uh, then they're whittled, which is when the cocoa nib, which is kind of the seed of the bean is removed from all the husks. Um, which then the, get, the nibs get ground to create cocoa liquor, which is added with cocoa butter and some sugar. And um, those are kind of the real main elements of our cocoa. We typically only have only three to four ingredients in our chocolate bar. So then it gets tempered, molded, wrapped, which is such a, a cool thing I seen when I went to our factory in Madagascar, seeing the, the bars get wrapped and foiled. And the pack, the packaging that we use as well is also printed and sourced from Madagascar. So we work and try to create as much economic value within the origin as possible. And then it's packaged and boxed up and uh, sent to the port. And then from the port, it arrives here to America. So that's kind of the process of making chocolate um, with us. And we're really happy to make many different flavors. We have... um, a pure dark a line, which is 70%, 80%, or 92% cocoa. And then we have some inclusions, which are our sea salt and nibs, our salted almond and toasted coconut. I prefer dark, strong chocolate, but there are people who really like white chocolate for various reasons. I have a friend, she cannot eat dark chocolate because she gets really bad migraines and she can only eat white chocolate. White chocolate is actually a result of clever marketing. It's a byproduct of the chocolate making process, right? Yes, but we love chocolate. Chocolate is chocolate. Milk chocolate, white chocolate, dark chocolate. But milk chocolate is um, just more, it's more cocoa butter than there is cocoa solids. And in dark chocolate, that's uh, any cocoa percentage above 70% is really where you get to tap into the health benefits of dark chocolate. So uh, we we uh, recommend if you're somebody who is typically hanging out in the lower percentages or, or enjoys milk chocolate to try our 70% pure dark. Um, that is kind of a really entry level dark chocolate. And if you're into somebody who likes the more bitterness, you can go up into an 80 or 92% and those have less sugar. Uh, so the, there's much more cocoa percentage and, and it has much more of those antioxidants and fibers and flavonoids that that really supports mood boosting and energy boosting as well. Those flavonoids and and antioxidants in dark chocolate. What are the origins of your chocolate? We are really proud to launch new flavors, um, which which feature Ugandan cocoa. And it's our first time entering a new origin outside of Madagascar. Origin does play with flavor. Um, it does give you access to how, you know, the, the air quality or the, the ele- elevation um, the water that all kind of uh, directs some of the flavor. 
um, but origin does as well, where, where it comes from. And so Uganda, our entrance in Uganda is really a way to model what we've done in Madagascar at creating a fully transparent, equitable supply chain from cocoa farm to chocolate factory. So we're really looking to build and expand on our mission of really bringing as much value to cocoa to the origin as possible. So that's kind of the next iteration of us is is really bridging what we've done in Madagascar to other origins within the African continent. You visited Madagascar and Uganda in the past month. What was your experience? This is the first time you had gone to a cocoa farm and through the chocolate making process. Yes, I only went to had an opportunity to visit Madagascar. I haven't been to Uganda yet, but my visit to Madagascar was really humbling to see how people live with the most minimal amount of resources but still have happy lives was just something for me that was my main takeaway. Um I was able to eat on the cocoa farms food from the farm, so eating bananas and and seeing how things grow up, in particular pepper. I didn't know pepper grew on a tree or or even that before I started cocoa, did I know that cocoa grew on a tree and started as a fruit that ended up mm-hmm. beca- becoming a chocolate bar? So uh, it was very humbling to interact with uh, the people of Madagascar. They, they're very diverse and friendly. Um, but one thing I learned is that through our experience of talking to some of the employees that work with us is that they feel more empowered to work um, with us, whereas in other companies that they work for, they're not as empowered to work autonomously or independently or or come up with ideas or offer opinions. Uh, that's not encouraged in, in Malagasy culture, but working with Americans, because we do have a team of, of people on the ground in Madagascar who are American uh, or, or Malagasy or uh, American trained, and they're really able to adapt and learn from us so that they're able to be essentially better employees and, and, and able to really demand advancement and development. So is there a particular ecosystem besides the weather, the tropical humid weather that a cocoa plant or farm thrives in? Of course. Um, cocoa best thrives in humidity. That's best served when there's actually an agroforestry system of biodiverse other other plants and and activities happening. So that means within our cocoa farm, there's banana trees, mm-hmm. there's mangoes. Like I said, there's peppers, there's vanilla, there's all these plants that uh, essentially s- surround the cocoa tree so that all the humidity stays within it. And so that's how we also found, we did a study mm-hmm. with the Conservation International in the Bristol Zoo that found four endangered species of lemurs actually are cohabitating on our cocoa farms. And then there's 12 species of reptiles, chameleons and geckos and and all the all these amazing that I, I I got to see firsthand when I went to visit the farm, but they're living autonomously and, and together um, to make sure that everything is growing fruitfully. And so we have seen um, where in some areas of, of West Africa is is really battling deforestation. We've seen on our farms that there's a lot of redevelopment, we're replanting and regrowth of of different plants. When was Beyond Good founded or Madagascar founded and who founded it? Beyond Good was founded as Madikas in 2008 by Tim McCullum, who was a returned Peace Corps volunteer teaching English in Madagascar. He really fell in love with 
the people, the culture, and saw an opportunity to, to bring economic impact to one of the poorest countries in the world through cocoa. In 2008, we started the company as Maricas, and then last year we changed the name to Beyond Good to really articulate our practices to solve issues affecting global chocolate. How does Beyond Good give back? I know you have owner-owned farms, owner-owned factories too? Our factory is in operation. We own, we own half of the factory. We did partner with a, a Malagasy-owned company to you know procure and build it, and we work with them to operate it and manage it. Um, that's so that we can maintain quality. So we've built wells within the different villages. We help build schools. We go back. We really like to think that that's just a part of what we do because it's instrumental to us creating the best flavor for cocoa. If, if farms and villages have the resources that they need for their children and their families, then they'll be able to provide uh, more flavor. And I think to say sometimes when you taste a bite of our chocolate, you're actually tasting some of the love and passion of the people that met that chocolate along the process, whether it was a farmer, somebody who transports the cocoa, or somebody at the factory who's actually so- molding it and packaging it. Um, to somebody in America who's helping to get it onto the shelves in the stores. So how did Tim know how to make the best chocolate? It was really trial and error. At first, we started with a co-manufacturer in Madagascar who produced Madagascar chocolate for Madagascar. And so that was part of the relationship for for many years. Um, but as as we developed, as we grew, we wanted to have more more say, more control over the quality um, and expectations of our chocolate. And to do that, that meant that we needed to, you know, have a more instrumental hand in the chocolate making process. Unfortunately, that manufacturer didn't want to participate in a, in a collaborative way. So we developed a relationship with a, a partner in Italy. They're still our partner. We still work with them to produce some of our chocolate for us as working in one of the poorest countries in the world. Electricity can go out at any time. Different resources are not readily available. So our partner in Italy still is a backbone to our supply chain. But um, we then use that to, to foster that relationship while we built and work with a partner in, in Madagascar to build a chocolate factory for us, with us. And that now it's been a year that that chocolate factory has been operating. And we're happy to announce that we've produced over a million bars in Madagascar and counting. And this year we're aiming to produce 2 million bars in Madagascar alone. So it was a trial and error process. Um, it took some time. Uh, we're still um, figuring out the right uh, equipment. At, uh, working in Madagascar has there's so much limit. There's limits to the people, the resources, the the access to equipment. So we have curated our our, our factory to with the best machinery and people possible in sub-Saharan Africa to make sure that we can export the level of chocolate that is available to us. Most of your farms are small. They are small farmers. Do you specify what type of cocoa tree they should grow to provide a diversity? Uh, My question stems from the bananas, which come from Latin America. They all look the same. Or the pineapples from Hawaii or the corn from Indiana. There's a lack of biodiversity in commercial agricultural production, right? So in your instance, are you a driving force in guiding the farmers uh, to make a more biodiverse cocoa environment? Our relationship with our farmers is a very collaborative. We really want to work with them to make sure that they're able to sustain and sustainably 
maintain their farms. And so with that, that there does come encouragement to grow other plants and that comes with additional income. So the, our farmers are not only growing cocoa for income, they're growing bananas for income, but that also supports them in living. I know one of our farmers gives each of his workers a plot to grow rice. So that means that not only are they able to grow, they're able to provide for their family on this land. So that's one way of of supporting his his employees on the farm is by giving them a, a rice plot so that they can grow rice. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's it's important and instrumental to 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 cocoa that there are other plants that are around it to support the development of that tree of the cocoa tree, but it, it also provides them additional income. So it is some there's some rooted drivers of why our cocoa farms are encouraged to grow other plants and fruits and vegetables. So do they also grow different, the three different types of cocoa? The cocoa is almost for sterile and criollo. So we, we really work with some of the best, but that's just really because that's what was planted there. And as we replant trees, we're continuing to replant some of the most, the best quality of trees. And even within a criollo tree, that doesn't mean that all the cocoa that comes out of the criollo is going to be Criollo. It is the trees, as we can imagine, there's so much uh, things happening within the, the DNA of the tree that it does create from that one tree does create multiple different varieties of cocoa. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how we're able to really maintain level of quality is through the finishing process, Mm -hmm. through the drying, through the fermenting, through the roasting. And in areas that we can control, that's where we can monitor and control flavors. Oh, so I get it. Even though you grow different types of cocos, there is some cross-pollination and the output kind of changes a bit. Is that what it is? Yes, Yes, exactly. So you mentioned that you carry vanilla. Is that from the same region, from the same farmers? Yes. So we we source vanilla. Um, Vanilla was kind of our legacy product. So before we even got into chocolate, we found Madagascar is known for its vanilla, most some of the most purest, best uh, vanilla. So that's kind of where we started. And as history has, there's been a lot of issues with this with the trade of, of vanilla. A few years ago there was a large storm that wiped out a lot of the crop, which then caused a rise of prices, which caused some some issues with corruption and other areas of, of discrepancy. But we work with a company that procures and sources our vanilla um, just so that we, we're focused on on chocolate. So we do work with a, a co-manufacturer to source all of our vanilla for us, but we are instrumental in making sure that that supply chain is as transparent and equitable as our cocoa supply chain. We record this podcast on April 14th and you are in New York City in the throes of the coronavirus pandemic. How has your supply chain been affected? Are you still able to get chocolate across and to the United States? And more and more people are cooking at home and food supplies are getting stocked out. Yes, as you mentioned, you know, more and more people due to the coronavirus are spending more time at home, which means that they're able to cook more and taste more. And so we've been finding people have been turning to chocolate in these moments, um, especially good chocolate, good quality chocolate. And so we've uh, experienced um, some delays with getting our product on shelves after being sold out because 
uh, some of our uh, distributors were only stocking essential items. Um, and to some people, chocolate is essential <laughs> and mm-hmm. to some chocolate isn't. Um, uh, we like to think chocolate is always essential. Um, so that's one thing that we were excited about. But as you know, our supply chain does route back to Madagascar, which doesn't have the, the resources that America or other countries have, we've been deduced to a very minimal chocolate supply. Our factory in Madagascar mm-hmm. is operating at a minimal supply. There's about four or five employees working when there's normally 42. Um, and because we're vertically integrated supply chain, we're able to maintain um, and, and able to monitor and you know protect that where some industries have uh, supply chains that have been obliterated due to the crisis. Um, but we've actually been able to maintain that and still be able to make chocolate. So that's one thing we're really proud of. About, and that's because we've been able to have that control. If we worked at a factory that wasn't ours and we didn't weren't able to operate it, there might have been some issues in us being able to still make chocolate in Africa. So I can still get my chocolate. <laughs> yes, um, and and we're online as well. We've we've opened our online store. Our new Uganda products are exclusively available online. So there's um, really opportunities for people to still get the chocolate that they want and that they need uh, without having to leave home and. And so that can still feel safe. So this whole pandemic has changed our lives as business owners and as consumers, right? I saw a Instagram live cooking show by Tim, I think. Um, was that? Yes, that was that was Robert. He's our specialty sales manager. He did a live pairing of chocolate and coffee. So it was a morning pairing. We've done some wine and chocolate pairings. We've done live cooking. So we're really looking at uh, opportunities to engage with our customers as they're at home, as we're at home, and really create opportunities to connect and engage with our customers in a way that increases loyalty. There's so many chocolate brands in the industry, all with so many great stories and backgrounds, but we really wanted to use this opportunity to show um, our customers who beyond good and the people behind it as well. So you're the director of communications. Do you think the way we communicate will change the way a brand will communicate with the customer and where the customer communicates with the brand? I think this pandemic will shift how people communicate indefinitely. I think more companies will take on um, more people working out of the office and working from home, um, giving people more empowerment to choose how they want to work, where they work, when they work. And then how brands communicate will be much more transparent and vulnerable um, as instead of always just trying to sell something, really creating a positive interaction and authentic connection to their customers. And that's just something that takes trial and error. It takes you just going out, doing, capturing the results and then shifting should you need to after gathering all the data uh, from that interaction. So we're still in the midst of, of what this pandemic has shifted in our society, but I'm excited to see how technology and people come together in these moments of crisis for the better of people. Thank you, Ashton, for joining us and sharing with us how 
chocolate is made. And especially for me, since I just absolutely love chocolate. It's such a pleasure. Um, you can find us around the nation in Whole Foods and Sprouts and specialty stores. We're typically around a 4 to $5 bar. Sometimes you can catch us on sale, uh, two for five or two for six, depending. So it's a really accessible price um, that really supports our mission to make as much chocolate as possible at Origin and really change the way the world experiences and tastes chocolate. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with a friend. Subscribe and follow us on our Facebook and Instagram page. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer for Mindful Businesses. 